Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. Right in time for the holiday season, The Ringer's merch store has tons of new stuff. And right now, almost everything on the site is 20% off, including your favorites like Binge Mode and Ringer NBA. And for the first time, we are introducing brand new merch for NBA Desktop, Shea Serrano's Villains, and Bill's Parent Corner. This Black Friday Cyber Monday sale lasts until Monday, November 26th. You can check it out on theringer.com slash shop. David, over the weekend, Morning Joe co-hosts Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski tied the knot. What I want to know is, which current talk show most needs an onset romance to spice things up? Um, you got to be careful here. Yeah, let's not offend anybody. We want to do that. Not, don't say uh, the Today Show. The um, uh, is, is first take a morning show. Can I can I throw that? Can I can I? Uh, I mean, I would I would love to. See, I think the the only where the only place they can really go from here is for Stephen A. and Max to uh, <laughs> to get some of that Sam and Diane magic. For a second, I um, thought you were mistaking it for Get Up, but you really you really didn't mean first take. No, Get Up is Get Up is the answer, right? I mean, Get Up if Get Up it had a little you know like greeny beetle thing going on then maybe there would be a maybe 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 beetle would still be around maybe there'd be there'd be a little you know there would have been a little more interest in in the goings on yeah i almost i almost think you know as i as i kind of my mind wanders around the cable dial i almost think we need the other uh strategy of 80 sitcoms which is just to bring on a kid you know, family has a new kid. So yeah. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't Sean wouldn't Sean Handy be much better if there was like a four year old sitting next to him on the desk, just like Wait, did, face covered in did, marmalade or something, making funny. Didn't noises? they do that with Mike? Didn't they do that with Mike Golick's new show? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, boy. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. We are the Shotgun Wedding of Media Podcast. <laughs> this is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to write a column about all the things you're thankful for. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. David, welcome back from Thanksgiving. Three huge topics for us to discuss today. First, the latest Facebook F-up, which culminated with a pre-Thanksgiving news dump. We will try to sort that out. Second, we flash back to the still-festering Kevin Durant versus Draymond Green feud and discuss what role, if any, the media had in making it worse. And finally, former First Lady Michelle Obama is selling her new memoir in the Barclays Center. How the ritual that is the book tour became an arena tour. Plus, as always, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with Facebook. As you know, I like to joke that there are more people on Twitter claiming to spot a Friday news dump than there are actual Friday news dumps. But what Facebook did the day before (laughs) Thanksgiving, that was a news dump. It was mm-hmm. a pure news dump. Came in the form of a statement by outgoing executive Elliot Schrag, who confirmed much of the November 15th New York Times investigation. Some highlights of said investigation, how Facebook decided that candidate Donald Trump's 2015 attack on Muslims didn't violate its terms of service, how Facebook was slow to reveal and then eager to downplay the extent that Russian trolls had used his pages to try to influence the 2016 election, how in October 2017, Facebook used a consultant that then tried to hold up George Soros as the hidden force behind Facebook's critics. And then, of course, with any great investigation, there are these small but merciless details, such as the one where Mark Zuckerberg gets mad at Apple's Tim Cook and then commands his management team to only use Android phones. That was, that was my, my favorite. In an essay in New York 
Uh, Max Reed writes, the old Facebook, the ever-expanding, government-ignoring, world-conquering company of only a year or two ago is gone. What did you make of Facebook's massive climb down and essential admission of the Times investigation? Maybe this is a little bit too much of a window into my life and then it's increasing dramatic normalization. But this is the first like news dump that in recent memory anyway, that I that I experienced as a news dump where I was like literally <laughs> in a car on the way out of town, like trying to pack the back of a car and just saw this thing pop up on my phone where it was just like Facebook admits some stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'll get to that tomorrow. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and they caught you but, going away for Thanksgiving. Like it actually yeah, accomplished like, the purpose. Was, it was totally effective. It was really, it was really good. And th- thankfully, you know, Ringer Slack kept me posted through most of the night. But um, yeah, I mean, I think kind of what's most surprising um, about it is less some of the wild acknowledgements in the news dump, <laughs> um, but the sort of implicit acknowledgement that Facebook kind of plays by the regular rules now in doing things like, you know, the holiday news dumps and, and, be, and just being forced to admit to reality when it, you know, contradicts what they've previously said in the first place. Mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree. And I think like one of the fascinating things that's happening with this for people, for those of us who are not um, reading Recode all the time and are mm-hmm. not part of the kind of Silicon Valley watching media, this idea that we're seeing portraits of all these people like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg that are not, you know, the kind of glowing sepia tone portraits that we've seen in the past. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Right. Right. And I think that's like had a big imp- I mean, last year, 2017, Mark Zuckerberg was on a listening tour that people saw as a prelude to him running for president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> think about that. Right. And then there's this piece in the November 19th Wall Street Journal. This is after the Times investigation. Deepa Sitharaman, I hope I pronounced that correctly, writes, Mark Zuckerberg gathered roughly 50 of his top lieutenants earlier this year and told them Facebook Inc. was at war and he planned to lead the company accordingly. His announcement, along with other behavior, has led to increased clashes with Sheryl Sandberg, the COO, who reportedly feared for her job after Zuckerberg was displeased with the way Facebook handled itself in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So I think we're seeing... I think, again, just sort of the lay person is seeing these people under pressure, under fire, and as you say, acting like very normal corporate executives as opposed to internet visionaries. As famous, I mean, as as Facebook is, as, you know, indispensable as it has been um, or as as it seemed in our modern lives. Yeah, I mean, I think for for the average people and people, you know, who are even – less plugged into this stuff than you or I. I mean, it's we're talking about people who are, I mean, Zuckerberg, for as much of a, a space as he occupies in the popular imagination, is probably, you know, the the the, the portrayal of him in the social network is pro- probably more salient than anything that he's actually done. I mean, does anyone, I mean, does your average person know what his voice sounds like, you know, or knows what he looks like outside of a still wire photo? And I mean, and, you know, I would, I would say with great confidence that most people, people know Sheryl Sandberg as a glossy photo on the cover of a book in an airport, you know, I mean, not as a, not as a, you know, chief operating officer. No, in, um, the, in the case of Zuckerberg, I put myself in that category before he testified before Congress. I just hadn't yeah. heard him talk that much. I really sure. hadn't. 
Yeah, no, he's 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 managed to be to be very present, but very sort of uh, you know hidden at the same time, and I think that sort of speaks to um, the company that he's built. Yeah, there was this other good column I thought, or kind of interesting column by New York Times is uh, Jim Rutenberg, who's their media columnist, who sort of said, looking back at the social network, saying we should. It's funny he was cast. Zuckerberg or the Zuckerberg character in that movie was cast as kind of the kind of the good guy, if an extremely complicated good vi- good guy. Yeah, against the kind of old money forces of the Winklevi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Rudenberg writes is that you know basically what happens in that movie, which is he does something wrong, he gets caught doing something wrong, and then he kind of backtracks and backtracks and apologizes and apologizes, but doesn't really mean it. That is kind of how he's behaved with everything. Rudenberg writes the cycle goes like this. Something bad happens of increasingly severe consequence on Facebook, say Russian election meddling or the incitement of ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. And after it is called out, Mr. Zuckerberg or another company official vows to do better. And when the heat is off, the cycle begins anew. And that is so right. That portrait of Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, we could we could insert that at any point over the last five years and it would essentially be correct. Yeah, and and I think, I mean, maybe I'm just too old and hardened, but the, what, it's, I think that what surprises me a little bit is that it's all sort of feels like it's amounted to something at this point, right? I mean, that it's finally all stacked up to the point where the the general perception, um, even amongst you know the vast majority of people that don't know what Mark Zuckerberg sounds like when he speaks, um, you know, I think the 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 Q rating for Facebook is has taken a you know is a pretty sustained and and legitimate hit. It's you know it, especially recently. Yeah, that was also there was a note about that in Max Reed's column too. It's also, and we might talk about this in a second, but it's amazing that both Republicans and Democrats are now mm-hmm. anti Facebook. He suddenly yeah. Facebook was trying to navigate this, is, and this is part of the Times piece, trying to navigate this political problem they had where conservatives thought Facebook was anti conservative. And they wound right. up navigating it so poorly that they now are, you know, there's now this really popular political position to attack Facebook. Let's listen to um, one piece of a podcast that was interesting. Alex Stamos, former chief security officer of Facebook and a character in this Times investigation, uh, appeared on the If Then podcast with Will Aremus. And he talks a little bit uh, about the, what exactly the problems were that Facebook was trying to solve. Let's listen to that. The truth is, is that a lot more was happening, especially in the late 2016, early 2017 time period than is publicly known. And because of these concerns about not centering itself in the controversy after the election of Donald Trump, I think Facebook missed this huge opportunity to demonstrate that the company is part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, and and because of that missed opportunity, now everything else that comes out is seen through the lens of the idea that Facebook doesn't care, which is not accurate, at least for the, the people that I worked with. What he gets at there, I think, is a fascinating part of this question, which is, to what extent does Facebook have a moral problem? And by that, I mean that Facebook is immoral. Uh, and mm-hmm. to what extent does Facebook have a PR problem that they've behaved you know, somewhere between good to okay, and they've just, you know, they're they've sold it poorly. They've they've made other public mistakes that have counteracted uh, what they were trying to do behind the scenes. How do you read that question? It's a good question. I, I think it's you know, as with all these things, it's probably somewhere in the middle. But I, I I just feel like it's hard to not sort of I guess for me to not take a sort of arch point of view on this. But it seems like it's not a matter of 
of, you know, evil, it's a matter of amorality so much as it's a moral problem, right? It's this, like, this this diehard uh, sort of uh, capitalist libertarianism that, you know, libertarian ethos that, that guides not just Facebook, but many tech companies and many companies full stop uh, in this day and age um, that would um, allow there to be you know, like, like you, that you would see something that, that go wrong to it, any of the examples that, that you've mentioned so far. Um, you know, global global politics. You know, any time they've they Facebook has been seen to be a contributor to a bad actor, or, you know, a, 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 a tragedy of any level. Um, you know, when something like that happens, normally a company would just would actually make a change and not see it through the lens of like, well, how will this change affect? Our bottom line, mm-hmm. um, or that's what you would hope, right? And that's certainly what the that that's certainly what we expect of um, of our tech companies on some idealistic level, right? I mean the 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 argument against you know nationalizing something like Facebook, which is obviously an idea that's been floated more and more, um, and and. You know, or and even viewing them as public accommodations in any sense is is I mean the argument against it is that you know this is the you know what's great about America you know <laughs> and, and this is and and that and that we like to think of them as some sort of like post ideological institution where that sort of that sort of government restraint wouldn't be necessary and um, you know I think what we see with Facebook in, in particular is that it trends it it you know everything kind of trends towards that same place that we've seen many times before I mean it, it's no accident that that you know Google's motto is famously don't be evil for so long and that's a, obviously a, a different company mm-hmm. but I think that I think that that was the sort of you know that that was the the kitschy you know cross stitch motto above the kitchen door in all these tech companies <laughs> until they you know, remodeled and remodeled and brought the uh, and brought the IKEA furniture in, and yeah. it's um, now there's an accent wall where that yeah, uh, exactly, was. yeah. And I, I just I think that I think that we even those even you know those amongst us that that you know that stomp on the ground about this stuff. I mean, we we do we do expect more of these tech companies, and and I think more than anything, it's because we're of that generation and we expect more of ourselves. Yeah, I think so. I also think that kind of amoral libertarianism that you speak of was sold as a unifying liberalism, right? Yeah. I mean, it was so, so it's like these guys are on our side, right? And I think one of the fascinating parts of the time story is you see Facebook discovering that, you know, discovering the extent of that Russians were using the platform to try to monkey with sentiment uh, in the 2016 election. But then they, they hit this big, political problem, which is if we come out and say this forcefully, we are going to be seen as, you know, hinting that Donald Trump only won the election because of Russian interference. And back in 2016, 2017, that was still a little bit of a controversial, you know, coming out and saying that would have been a big deal right now, probably Mm -hmm. not so much. Um, And so they, and they were just really, really worried about the effects that would have on Capitol Hill and otherwise, you know, we're going to just piss off 46% or whatever it is of the country uh, by saying this. Another fascinating uh, moment in this piece that speaks to that exact same question of doing right and then the appearance of doing – and then giving the appearance of doing right, a.k.a. moral problem and PR problem, 
is when Trump made a Facebook post in 2015, then candidate Trump, about the Muslim ban that he was proposing. And Facebook starts to wonder about, is this something that violates our terms of service? Should we just take this down? This mm-hmm. is Alex Stamos talking to Will Remus about that question. Creating a situation that Donald Trump loses, and part of his argument is he lost because the tech industry conspired to to silence him. I think that's the kind of thing that they were afraid of, uh, and perhaps for good reason. I think you know if you're going to get involved like that, you've got to have a really really high reason. And and a lot of the Trump material, while again I think it would have been taken down from somebody else, was right there on the line. Um, and uh, if you're, if you're going to make that call, I think the tie goes to the runner if the runner is a candidate in a, a major election. There's a great use of a sports metaphor. Tie goes to the runner who is a bigoted presidential candidate proposing a Muslim ban. Um, but I would I would say it is a tough call, right? You understand. Yeah, I was going to say it's like, I was going to say of, of, of all of these moral quandaries, that is the one. I mean, that's the quandary that I that I think is the most legitimate and partly because it's two really, I mean, very different countervailing forces. Right. I mean, it, it's one is. The sort of this sort of moral or not moral, but kind of ethical uh, question about site rules and creating a community. And the other one's about, uh, you know, the other side is this incredible political catastrophe that's almost 100 percent going to happen. You know, yeah. Stamos went on to say that because Facebook essentially made that decision in secret about whether they would keep that up or not and didn't someone mm-hmm. come out and say, you know, sort of share with the public their reasoning about it. It seemed it sort of chipped away at their trustworthiness because people didn't see like a debate going on on the public stand a public standard attempting to be you know figured out right. So that's also part of this problem too is that they're sort of going into a every time something like this happens they go into a bunker and then they come out and maybe maybe not maybe in pieces release something <laughs> and it was exactly the same thing with this time story. Sheryl Sandberg initially says yeah. I didn't have anything to do with this consulting firm, which is, by the way, named Definers from the Christopher Buckley school of this sounds like something from a political parody novel, but is true, but is not. It is actually real Definers. Yeah. Uh, so PR. It's so amazing. Uh, and then comes out and says, oh, well, some of it, you know, was across my desk. By the way, we should say that that in, in, in the annals of corporate climb downs, the thing that they released right before Thanksgiving and Nick Confessori, who was one of the authors of the New York Times investigation, tweeted, I've never seen a memo. And the memo is Elliot Schrade, the outgoing executive, essentially confessing to the crime and taking responsibility. And then Sheryl Sandberg sort of coming in and saying, thanks, Elliot. Uh, I'll take some mild responsibility. OK, we're out of here. He says, I've never seen a memo in which one executive basically reads out a confession and his boss then judiciously comments on the confession. <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Yeah. And you mentioned Facebook having bunkers. I think now is as good a time any just to throw in the jab that they've formally closed their election interference war room that they touted just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I guess the election is now over, but um, that's a, I f- that really feels like another example of a of a very short-lived PR boon for them. My, my timelines may be wrong, but Elliot Schrag announced he was resigning in June. I, I, I didn't he, I, like he already fell on a sword and it's like they brought him back for an encore <laughs> to jump on top of another one. Mm-hmm. Um, How many people have because he left right swords. after came. Yeah. He, he left right after Cambridge Analytica and it was just like, they were like, well, who's going to take the fall for this one? I was like, well, is Elliot still here? Like, could he, <laughs> could we bring him back and give him another, like a bigger parachute? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the, the, yeah, the 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 way that Sandberg sort of, you know, admitted 
qualified that she that yeah i mean it's it's also frustrating because it's like i understand how that could, on some level it could be true and in her mind it could be true that she didn't really know who they were but i mean i don't know what else what else I don't know that there's any way to look at it other than that she was just bullshitting, right? I mean, because I don't, I don't know, I don't, the fact that she received emails and memos about this, uh, like, what else did you expect her to do, you know, short of, like, pulling out the risk board and, you know, with a laser pointer showing where the enemies are and where to attack? I mean, I, uh, it was, it just, it was a pretty spectacular uh piece of literature <laughs> that dump and yeah and the level of of just admission too I, it's all bizarre you know you've mentioned a couple of times before we get away from this i want to say it about the you know the the political stakes for them and we've talked in the you know the ringer office a couple of times about how sort of amazing it is that facebook is constantly in the crossfire for this kind of stuff not just from you know trump and but but you like you said republicans and democrats have both have found common cause in you know hating facebook but but the other tech giants amazon Google, um, you know, it, it's they're they've sort of like skated by, um, or, or you know, so which so either they're much better at hiring lobbyists and you know finding people, uh, and you know finding like-minded people on the hill, or uh, Facebook's a, you know a totally different beast. And I think I think that the latter is probably true. Um, it was hilarious in the New York Times piece where. I mean, not not it wasn't news to you know to to the world, but that Chuck Schumer was sort of added as being their biggest fan, and that I mean their biggest proponent on the Hill, and then also that his daughter was working there. Yeah. It's like, could you could there be more of like a ham fisted way to accomplish you know <laughs> getting influence in Washington than doing it like that? I mean, the the whole thing just just seems sort of sort of silly. Well, I would tell you the the only way that would be more ham fisted would be hiring the consulting firm. <laughs> which then, which is whole the whole point of which, and you said compared to Google and other big tech companies, was they were going to push bad news about Google to reporters. It's so wild. And then also, uh, the, this company, Definers, uh, a conservative, they use the conservative news site, the NTK Network, which is one of their affiliates. And in fact, as the Times reports, shares office space with them in, Ar- in Arlington, Virginia, and would push uh-huh. articles about that. And this is the NTK Network. Does not have a large audience of its own, but its content is frequently picked up by popular conservative outlets, including Breitbart. So, you know, Facebook, which had been in part of the storm of fake news, has then hired a consultant, which with or without their knowledge is sort of pushing these PR crafted releases, consulting documents as news, which then get picked up by conservative news sites. Yeah. I mean, that's just incredible. And you can, and and the cycle sort of completes itself at that point, right? I mean, when we're when I'm asking sort of rhetorically why Facebook gets more attention than some of the other tech giants, it's because sites like Breitbart are going to get clicks for writing stories, you know, for publishing stories about Facebook in a way their audience won't necessarily gravitate towards stories, despite Trump's attempts about how Amazon is evil, or certainly not how like Google is evil, even though there's big constituencies for that. It's not the same as it's not the same click through rate, I'm sure, as as a uh, you know a Facebook takedown. And I think that that's that's sort of the bigger issue. A lot of the pieces about Facebook have have touched on this, but you know, we're it seems like in a matter of in the blink of an eye, it you know, far be it for me to sit to you know ring the death knell for a company as, as monumental as Facebook, but it does seem like Facebook has gone from the most significant form of uh, public life to a thing that our grandparents use, you know, and <laughs> and I think that that's probably why it's more. Um, 
it's I, I think that I mean to me that connects that, that that brings us back around to what I said at the beginning where they're they're sort of figuring out how to be an old-fashioned company right I mean they're 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 in the position of doing Friday news dumps of, of facing these sort of public ramifications in a way that that it seemed like they might be, be above in a time but they're you know they have growth is down and they sort of are are ossifying into a you know, just an, a, a classic American industry in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need, we need like a, them to start running commercials like Dean Witter used to run during our childhood. Remember, this was like an old accountant looking guy on the screen, you know, telling you about the virtues of the company. That's what we know what they have truly transformed. And by the way, I want, we need to invite cousin Sal on this podcast to come on and handicap which presidential candidate is going to be the first to just wrap their arms around the anti Facebook slash regulate Facebook mantle. Oh, that's great. You know, Trump is kind of already there because he's just anti, you know, he'll, he'll just, he'll slag them, but that's not really news. But like, you yeah. know, Amy Klobuchar uh, is in this piece that having a very tense call with Sheryl Sandberg, right? There are a lot of people looking for an edge in a very dim, in a very crowded Democratic primary field who this ain't a bad issue, right? And this is mm-hmm. something, you know, coming off Russian interference, coming off as you speak of this liberal disillusionment with the tech, with all of tech uh, and with the healing power of Silicon Valley, they could be very, very interesting and potent in a Democratic primary. It is. The, the Democratic side is interesting. I mean, I think the Republican side, you can understand the tension a little bit more, although I think a lot of it's disingenuous. I mean, Trump has just kind of figured out that magic middle where he can where he can trash a, a tech company uh, and ensure that he will be able to, you know, use the the their platform forever. Um, but it makes sense why, you know, why the Republican base would get excited over the super liberal tech companies, you know, affecting their their candidates' chances. Um, I I have a hard time. Ima- you're right. I think in the Democratic primary season, you're right. It's going to be very attractive. I, I wonder if I wonder if the the candidates will have to will be worried about hedging against that in the in the general when they when you know a Democrat saying nationalize this major corporation uh, will sound a little bit uh, too far left. It's a very good question. All right, David. Time for our overword Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Did you catch any of that insane seven overtime LSU Texas A&M game on Saturday night? Yeah, I did. Absolutely. Aggies finally won 74 to 72. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say incredibly bad beat if you had under 145 and a half points. Uh, that's from John Tatum. The actual over under for that game, by the way, was 45 and a half. So they 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 scored 146. They scored a hundred more, hundred and a half more points. Than the over under, <laughs> one hundred. That's that's uh, oh that's pretty gosh. insane. <laughs> Did you follow David the dumb Alexandria Ocasio Cortez jacket controversy? Wait, uh, was this about her having a designer jacket? That yes, one? that that right. th- that dumb. I don't know how. For some reason, it seemed like there could have been multiple jacket controversies. <laughs> yeah, we, I I think we we don't really read Breitbart enough to know what controversies are festering about here, but there probably have been more. The newly elected 29-year-old rep from Queens told the New York Times she wouldn't be able to afford an apartment in Washington, D.C. when she takes office in January. The Washington Examiner's Eddie Scary, and never has a person been more well-named, tweeted a creep <laughs> shot of her uh, from behind with a note, Hill staffer sent me this pic of Ocasio-Cortez just now. I'll tell you something, that jacket and coat don't look like a girl who struggles. <laughs> um, 
there was a lot of stuff, a lot of a lot of responses, um, which were essentially <laughs> taking these scary tweet and just putting it on other things. Lots of pictures of Gritty, the Philadelphia <laughs> Flyers mascot everyone's obsessed with. Pics of the duck in Central Park that everyone is also obsessed with. And both um, <laughs> our very own Kate Nibbs and Alex Perrine both landed on the George Costanza puffy jacket as uh, <laughs> to go along with that. I, th- I thought that was funny. Um, in other news, Donald Trump, the aforementioned, defending... GOP voter suppression efforts and false accusations of voter fraud told the Daily Caller in a wide-ranging interview. Did you did you ever think I'd be telling you an American president told the Daily Caller in a wide-ranging interview? <laughs> he says, if you buy, you know, a box of cereal, if you do anything, you have a voter ID, right? Saying he's trying to talk, he's trying to under, help us understand how common a voter ID is. And he says, if you go buy a box of cereal from the bodega down the street, you need uh, a voter ID. It yes. was an overworked Twitter joke to write, silly rabbit. Tricks are for registered voters. (laughs) That's thanks to Nashville's Benjamin Howard for that one. And finally, David, from the world of sports. Uh, Nice. Bengals. The Bengals announced that Hugh Jackson, recently (laughs) fired from the Cleveland Browns, would join the coaching staff as a special assistant to the head coach. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write assistant to the regional manager, immediately going for the office reference. That's great. Uh, thanks to Blue Shirts Breakaway for that. If you thought Hugh Jackson was Marvin Lewis's Dwight Schrute, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. <laughs> very good. All right, David, topic number two. I'd like to direct you to a very interesting story that Anthony Slater, who covers the Golden State Warriors for The Athletic, wrote on November 20th. He is writing, of course, about the Kevin Durant, Draymond Green controversy. Am I summarizing this correctly? When I say Draymond Green barreled down the court with the ball at the end of a game and would not pass to Kevin Durant, who wanted the ball. Mm-hmm. And then on the bench, Green then pointed out that Kevin Durant has not quelled the talk of him potentially leaving the Warriors as a free agent after the season is over. Yeah. I think that's I think that's a good description of what <laughs> Yeah. Is this has this been covered on the ringer? I haven't read any stories about this. Anyway, the uh Slater yeah. writes this potentially dynasty altering issue is so much deeper than just what Green said. It's the inescapable result, dot dot dot, of a dramatic, relentless modern day media storm of psychoanalysis about Kevin Durant. Slater continues, Durant's teammate didn't just call him a bitch. That was the uh, that was what was later reported had been exchanged on the bench there. The entire world knows he called him a bench. They're giggling about it online. Insults fly on his Instagram feed. Memes flood his timeline. Debate shows the aspect of modern media Durant privately privately rails against most. Use it as a jumping off point to hypothesize about his motives and dive into his mind. So essentially, what Slater's writing about is two teammates have a problem uh, in the NBA. This is not new in the world of sports. But now they have a problem in our modern sports media industrial complex, particularly our modern NBA Twitter industrial complex, of which you and I work for a website that is part of that. We should full disclosure. What do you, having read his piece, what did you make of this idea um, that this whole feud is being not not caused, certainly, but stoked, kept alive, uh, made worse by the media world? I I think it's indisputable. You said The Ringer has written many pieces about this, and that's true. Um, and I think that, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's not just the pieces we've written. I mean, as a staff, we've just relished in this, right? I mean, this is, this is the reason why uh, many of us love the NBA, and certainly why the NBA has become, you know, 
such a popular sport online. We've, you know, had different iterations of this conversation about, you know, NBA Twitter and everything else. But it's it's the it's the soap opera, you know, it's the it's the human aspect of it, which is which is more prevalent in the NBA than in any other sport. And, um, you know, there is there is a there is a demonstrably different feeling uh, seeing two players, teammates or not, but particularly teammates having a verbal spat on the bench on your TV in a basketball game than two, you know, football players in full gear smacking at each other's helmets or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a completely different thing. Um, and I, I, and I just think that, I mean, this goes to, uh, this goes to the heart of why we love basketball and professional basketball in, in modern, in, in current year. And I, and, but it also, you know, it's, it's that, that level of attention the fact that we're, you know, Zapruder filming every second of this conversation to try to figure out what words he Draymond said and everything else. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to be we 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 live for this kind of stuff, for better or worse. And and as easy as it is for in some of these instances, you know, some of the things that that Kevin Durant has gone through or, or you know other things that other players deal with, it's easy to say, well, just ignore it, you know, or just you know, it's easy it, you 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 would think it would be easy just to blow off that question at the press conference. And this is one of those cases where it's sort of easy to see, like, you can imagine being Kevin Durant and waking up in the morning and just being like, shit, I do not want to talk about this, you know? <laughs> and, and, and to know that it's just going to keep going every day until something takes its place, which is either, you know, another athlete going through something or, you know, a bigger story taking over. or But but likely, it's like the only thing that's going to take its place is something that's like more traumatic for you, you know, <laughs> or or wonderful, but like it's going to be a significant shift. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's this is a this is a media creation um, or a creation of the modern world that the media reflects, but it's it's a real thing. Yeah, I guess the, I guess the one thing I would sort of want to clarify is how much of this is actually new for our world. You know, what aspects of this? Because... One, the media world, sports media world you and I grew up in was full of psychoanalysis, was full mm -hmm. of amateur psychology. That's what newspaper columnists did. Mm -hmm. This is not something Skip Bayless started doing when he got on Undisputed. He was doing True. this in the Dallas Times Herald in 1988. It just was about Mark Aguirre and Sam Perkins, right, instead of, instead of Kevin Durant. I also think the sports media, Durant has this quote in here, and it's, a, it's an older – Quote, but he was saying, nothing's far-fetched when it comes to the stories and headlines and clicks, but what should be about the game is getting farther and farther away from the real game. You turn on TV, you turn on anything that has to do with basketball, there's less about the game, more about this stuff. As a pure basketball player, as a pure fan of the game at this point, it's pretty sickening. I also just want to push back on this idea that the media suddenly got interested in the off-court lives of these guys, right? Right. That's not true. And by the way, this was on the court. <laughs> this yeah. was literally oh, on the absolutely, court. Absolutely, yeah. This was this was not, you know, this was not like two members of the Dallas Mavericks are dating Tony Braxton. This <laughs> this is, or want to date or whatever the hell that was. This is, you know, this is this is a dispute amongst two teammates that happened on the bench. Yeah. So this is not something that sports writer this this is first of all not actually what that is, but it's like sports writers have been interested in this stuff forever. It's true. And if you're telling me two teammates are kind of feuding on the team that has won uh, the last two championships, like, of course, that's a huge story. That's a huge story at any time in the history of sports. Yeah. Uh, we didn't need NBA Twitter to get interested in that story. 
No, I think you're absolutely right. I, uh, the, the one qualification, which is even this did happen on the court, and yes, it would have been covered. You know, uh, it, it it would have been covered in the past. Um, although you know there were legitimate fistfights in the NBA not that long ago that weren't covered with this level of detail. But one of the things that Slater brings up in his piece, rightly I think, is just the the speed of the the news cycle or the attention of you know the the, the immediate attention that every little bit gets. And I think this was in the part where Steve Kerr was interviewed where he said. You know, we'll deal with this today, but then tomorrow one more, a different camera angle will come out or something. And then this story just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on. Whereas, you know, in years past, you had to wait, you know, two years to 10 years for the definitive Dallas Cowboys book that told you all the what was going on, you know, off the field and in, in, in those championship teams. See, I'm not I'm not actually convinced that that's correct. I, I just you, think he uses the he uses example of him getting socked by Michael Jordan in practice. And I don't mm-hmm. remember how quickly that came to light. I think he says it was a number of weeks. Um, we knew a lot about a lot of the stuff when it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Irvin with the scissors at Cowboys training camp. That that was a big deal. <laughs> it was yeah. not hidden. Uh, the off-field indiscretions of the Dallas Cowboys, world champion Dallas Cowboys in the 90s. I, I, I think people are, rem- are kind of misremembering how fast the media used to move. It is true that we couldn't just, you know, w- there was no woge bomb equivalent in 1994 yeah but the newspaper was out the next day and if something like this happened and it was on that late edition of sports center remember when that sports center re- replayed every like every hour from like 6 a.m to noon like mm-hmm. i don't think athletes in in 1994 thought the media was moving slow and i don't think they thought they were undercovered in fact i think they would have said the exact same thing right yeah oh this is you guys are just you guys, everybody's talking about this. This has become a story. They won't let this go. They're talking about it every day. The newspaper, they won't let me alone. It's just a different, I just think the one thing that, that Kerr said there that I think is right when you talk about the camera angle is that, and, and, and what's interesting is that Anthony Slater wrote this piece, the, one of the guys who has done more than anybody to kind of create this genre where I'm going to video a guy in the locker room and put his put his like video of his answer on Twitter immediately, right? When he's answering a question, which is very mm-hmm. different in the annals of sports writing, right? We didn't have that much, that kind of access. So it's almost to me, it's not that there's more psychoanalysis or even more obsession, but there is all this primary source material to psychoanalyze, yeah. right? Camera angles, games on, you know, uh, in the NBA package so that we can see every game, better camera angles so we can scrutinize every gesture that these guys are making. That to yeah. me is what actually is mostly new about this. Yeah, minor quibble, but you you said, you know, when when the the same episode of Sports Center would run in you know in blocks throughout the night. Um but I think that's addressed in the piece. I mean to, to just to the extent that like there was sort of like an end of day for the news cycle at least, you know, for and that's different now, right? I mean it, it, there there wasn't constantly updating overnight and you'd wake up to a whole new iteration of the story. I mean, I guess. What the do people not remember? When news, do people not remember yeah. when newspapers were? <laughs> newspapers no, yeah, were well, coming. Newspapers didn't arrive at night. What right, people are subscribing to e- afternoon newspapers? Uh, Woj, some people Woj, did. Woj, Woj normally now Woj is incredibly industrious, but he normally doesn't update every hour on the air throughout the night. He does. He does go to sleep and then wake up in the morning and start working again. Yeah, but but you're right about the about the you know the the iPhone videos and you know every little every every kind of bit of just you know primary source documentation getting pushed the moment it comes out and that's what most of the shows on ESPN and Fox Sports now are are, are based on is just you know throwing up a little video and asking for someone's impression of it um, and and I and I you know it's and 
it's that's you're right. I mean, that's that's a new thing. Um, one other minor thing about the on court, off court. I to- I actually totally agree with you. And this is you know as as far as NBA antics go, this is something that would have been addressed in any era. But I think what makes the the Kevin Durant Draymond Green scuffle so significant is an off the court issue. I mean, it's the issue of his looming free of Durant's looming free agency, right? And that's something that is again free agency in the NBA has been a reality for a long time, but you can't say that it's been it's been as much of a hot stove just meat market for news as it has become in the past several years. So that that's the second part of this that I totally sign on to, which is that our brains have been rewired to think transactions are the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So we're almost as interested in where Kevin if Kevin Durant's going to sign with the Warriors or or the Knicks or the Clippers or whomever next offseason as we are in the fact that the Warriors are going to win another NBA title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that makes that story and that, and, you know, and then of course, you know, it's like his, you know, potentially signing with the Warriors, right. Was broken by Woj. Was it halfway through his last season in Oklahoma city? Certainly during his last season in Oklahoma city. Yeah. Um, when you, when you rewire everybody to think that transactions are the most important thing that can happen um, or, um, or as important as stuff that happens on the court, then Yes. I think that is right, and it and it makes these kinds of things seem like huge. Like, where's Kevin Durant going to sign? Where's Kevin Durant going to sign? I also think a lot of this is just particular to Kevin Durant. Yes, because on the one hand, he has this, to me, admirable kind of "I don't give a fuck" attitude with the media, where he's happy to you know be pretty raw at times, and and the, no better example of that than the than the Simmons podcast he did, which were pretty incredible. And then at the same time seemingly take a lot of things that the media says about him very hard um, and be so at the one hand kind of I don't care and on the other hand be very very sensitive Mm -hmm. a different kind of player comes out and I am not as a sports writer person encouraging this and just says you know what I just don't want to talk about free agents I just I'm all in on the Warriors this is about winning a title that will be addressed in the future whatever he doesn't really have that gene um so this does become kind of a bigger story. And then as Slater reports, and he's as plugged into this as anybody, Kevin Durant is bothered by it probably more than your average NBA player. Yeah. The most interesting part of that whole Anthony Slater piece to me was the part about Kevin Durant being asked about being too sensitive and him saying, so what if I am? And it is just sort of like, it does it does make you stop and <laughs> think like, yeah, well, sensitive. yeah why, is sensitive? <laughs> why is sensitive a problem? Um I mean, we 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 leap for the chance to call you know a player of his caliber an artist, you know, in any in, in any uh, opportunity where it comes up, and then you know he actually has any sort of like non-robotic emotion, and uh, and everybody recoils in this very old school. I mean, talk about uh, you know a, a form of sports writing that's been around forever, like questioning the sensitivity of players. <laughs> it was I think Grantlin Rice like pulled that one out of the out of the, out of the woodshed. Yeah, did but, we um, just do that with Josh Rosen? I feel like, we had, like yeah, exactly long referendum, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a really, I mean, it's an interesting day. I can totally, he's, he's a very sympathetic character, even if you don't, even if he's not a a player that you like or a personality that you like, um, just because you sort of see, uh, you know, this whole conversation that we're having is sort of played out on his face over the past several years, you know, and we've got to, and we've, we've all had access to his expression, you know, and to his reaction to it. And that's, you know, and I think the, you know, the sort of example that's of what's changed the most. Um, it's funny too, that you talk about, 
Uh, you mentioned his podcast with Bill, and I was thinking about Bill earlier in this conversation, our boss Bill Simmons, of course, that because one because his his refrain about Durant now is that he he thinks he's probably going to leave Golden State because of course this is what because Bill like you know emblematic of every basketball fan is concerned about where Kevin Durant's going to be playing next year. But Bill's argument against it is he could have a dynasty at Golden State. He could win. They could win six championships, seven championships, and go down the record books forever. Mm-hmm. But it, but this goes to what you were saying earlier. It is really hard. I, I, f- I think it would be hard if you to, to convince Kevin Durant that that's really, I mean, not him in particular, but to convince anyone that the dynasty in the record books and winning these games is what's really important when what we're talking about is the hot stove shit and not actually winning games, right? Yep. Like, it, like when we're con- when the last thing we're concentrating on is the win is the win loss record and the championships. When all of the media is about the piddly other stuff, then it's really hard. I mean, it it it, it should, maybe it's not shouldn't be surprising when players are more concerned with anything else other than you know than leaving a giant legacy in a non-existent history book. Totally. Totally. Why would we penalize them then for thinking about what's my next free agent movie or too early? Yeah. All right, David, let's talk about Michelle Obama's book and the rollout thereof. The title of the book is Becoming. Uh, It has sold 1.3 million copies in its first seven days, according to CNN. And just to show you how addicted our society and our media is to dumb measuring stick numbers, CNN adds, Barnes & Noble says that Becoming had the best first week sales of an adult book since Ghost Set a Watchman was published in July 2015. So Michelle Obama has vanquished Harper Lee. <laughs> Finally, that scourge has been lifted. <laughs> we, just, just like we pit random movies against each other, let's definitely pit Michelle Obama and Harper Lee against one another. Um, what's interesting about this is Michelle Obama is selling this book on a, on a stadium tour. Yeah. Remember when we talked about the evening with the Clintons stadium tour, Mm -hmm. which is uh, playing in a couple of months at the forum? By the way, is Trump responsible for this? That all politicians are now just on this eternal arena tour? That we just, they were just, you know, Trump is like kind of less being president than just playing arena shows. And now I I just think that's kind of where we've come to, right, as a society that you you go see the Lakers and then you go see uh, Michelle Obama and maybe the Clintons. Yeah. I mean, the the economic side of this is really interesting to me, and not just as a person who used to work in book publishing. It's not long ago. I mean, it's actually present right now where the biggest authors in the world would go to bookstores that could seat 60 people, you know? Uh, and that would be their big their big moment. I mean, their big night in, you know, Washington, D.C. or, or, or Boston. Or, uh-huh. you know, I guess New, New York would be a bigger venue. Politics and prose um, are the big one of the big news. Yeah. Stores, yeah. And, 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 you know, certainly we had, I mean, I, I worked at politics and prose in a previous life. And when there were, there were a couple of authors who, for whom we would get bigger spaces down the road. Um, but that was like, I'm trying to think of who that would be. I mean, maybe, I mean, we're talking like JK Rowling level authors, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe depending on the political climate, uh, a Woodward, you know, or something like that. But, but, uh, you know, it's, there are very, very famous people that would just come in and, and talk to 30 people, you know, very fa- famous authors. Now, certainly this is a different level of, this is a celebrity that transcends authorship. Um, and there are definitely lots of authors that that do bigger venues than that. And, you know, David Sedaris does basically a, you know, a tour, his book tours are the same venues that a reasonably big 
acoustic rock and roll band would be doing <laughs> you know i mean it's i, I don't, I'm, I'm not may, maybe not mumford and sons but pretty close to mumford and sons <laughs> venues all around the country so i was going to ask you this what other authors could open could could do an arena tour or at least like a broad a broadway theater tour broadway theater would be really interesting i mean like it's stephen it's, king because stephen king, king could it would you, it would it has to be the intersection between someone who you who could write a book, <laughs> uh, who, who, who would write a book and someone who you'd be interested in spending an evening with. Right. So mm -hmm. it's not just, it's not just the level of celebrity. Right. I mean, you would, uh, my guess is that James Patterson could sell out a lot of giant venues, but like I, and I've seen him on TV. He's a very charming guy. I don't know if James Patterson has like two hours of material, you know, and would, <laughs> and, and could pull that off. But if he could, if he could, he would be, you know, he's such a big author. He'd be, he'd be that kind of guy. I mean, you think about like, John Grisham back in the day, and I honestly, you know, talking about Mar Mark Zuckerberg, I don't know what John Grisham sounded like. Although I feel like I lived, you know, lived with him for so such a long period of my life. Um, but you know, you could imagine there's like a folksy lawyer, John Grisham. If he's the character that he keeps writing, then sure, an evening with John Grisham that could sell out a Broadway, kind of, kind of pulling it as his suspenders in a seersucker suit kind of <laughs> yeah. night. It's exactly. like when Hal Holbrook used to play Mark Twain or something like yeah, that. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was I was saying it. Yes, um, the. Uh, the, but, you know, I, I would say there's a handful of writers, but for the most part, you'd be talking about people who are not first and foremost writers. You know, I mean, you'd be talking yeah. about... It's like Bill O'Reilly, right? I think he actually did have arena shows mm -hmm. uh, that were at least kind of semi-coincidental with his killing whomever books. Yeah, that was that. that is... But he's not a, he's not a writer per se. That's a, it's a fascinating question. So Michelle Obama's book tour begins at the... or resumes at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn on December 1st, and then she's going to Detroit, uh, the Little Caesars Arena, Denver, uh, at the Pepsi Center, et cetera, et cetera, before winding up back at Barclays on December 19th. By the end mm -hmm. of this year, Michelle Obama will have visited more NBA arenas than I have uh, in the calendar 2018. <laughs> wow. And not even close, by the way. <laughs> I don't I would say that proudly, but it's just true. Yeah. A um, couple things I found interesting looking at the kind of opening innings of her tour here. One was, it's really funny because there's this old reductive male gazy way uh that society and thinks of first ladies right which mm -hmm. is a window a mere window into the president into understanding their husband mm -hmm. um here is michelle ta obama talking to a very giddy jimmy kimmel about what barack obama is like when he gets stressed you said something very interesting i thought about your husband in your book is that on high pressure days, mm -hmm. he would be at his most relaxed and he would be the friendliest on those days. Why do you think that is? On his busiest days? Yeah. Because that, that's what fuels him. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, uh, he's a grinder, you know, I think. And, you know, he may be, uh, I, I think he feels most fulfilled when he's full, when his plate is full. I call him a, a, a plate spinner, you know, those jugglers that keep spinning those plates. And if one is starting to wobble, he spins it. And if everything's going okay, then he'll put another plate up. I think he gets his energy. Is he doing that. that at home now? Like literally with it, the China? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. He is not, not doing that at all. It's funny too, because at her, at her Washington DC stadium show, Barack Obama made a surprise walk on and uh -huh. handed her flowers and did this kind of funny bit where he was offering a slightly different 
memory of how they first met and got to their first date than she had offered previously that evening, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but then he kind of kept talking and he's holding the mic and she's kind of sitting there quietly and he kind of goes on and on. And, and what he's saying is sort of very touching, but it was a little bit, it was almost a little awkward. Like it went on a beat too long. It's like, no, 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 this is about her, right? You, 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 you had your chance. You know, we, yeah. we want to hear from her. We don't, you know, you're, you're sort of sitting here, you know, being a ball hog. Let's get back to Michelle Obama's uh, life and memories of the administration. I, it was funny because I was, I've never in my life said Barack Obama, please stop talking. But that was like one of the first times I've ever <laughs> felt that emotion. I think what's interesting about Michelle Obama though, is that we have gotten past what I mentioned a second ago as a conventional view of the first lady and people actually care about her as a force uh, and a political figure in her own right. She's gotten asked at every stop of this whether she's going to run uh, for office in the future, she says in the book, and has said to everyone that she's not. Uh, she has this line in the book talking about being the first African-American first lady in American history and saying, I had lived with an awareness that we ourselves were a provocation. She expanded on that idea a little bit uh, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. I felt affected the first lady's position. So figuring out how to have impact in a way that wasn't in your face, particularly as a black woman who is often already viewed as angry and mouthy and bossy and naggy. Um, I had to figure out how do I move people in a certain way and balance this perception of me that had already drummed up in the campaign, as you saw in the video. Yes. Um, so I had to figure that out. And, and, and what's interesting, we've had this conversation before. When people say these nasty things and write these nasty things and label you and put you in a silo, the angry black woman, that stuff hurts. Yes. It does. And it's important to say it. Just on that very same note, uh, talked about leaving the White House. Uh, they had essentially handed the keys over uh, to the sublet to the Trumps. Uh, they exited the White House grounds on Marine One, and then they got on Air Force One to fly home. And this is the emotion she experienced on Air Force One. But then we got on Air Force One, and I didn't write about this in the book because I had forgotten about it, because it was Valerie or some Valerie Jarrett or somebody who had reminded me that when I got on the plane, I think I sobbed for 30 minutes. And I think it was just the release of eight years of trying to do everything perfectly. And I said to Barack, I, I weeped in his arms, and I said, that was so hard. <laughs> what we just did, that was so hard. And I wanted to say that for eight years. It's hard. Fabulous stuff, isn't it? And, you know, what other memoir from a first lady has, you know, I'm not, not claimed to have read all of them, but has that kind of, you know, searing emotion and that kind of observation. Yeah. I mean, there's never been a, there's never been a first lady who, uh, I mean, in, in our lifetimes who had, you know, a relationship with, with the, her base that like Michelle Obama has. And, and part of that's, you know, uh, or maybe a lot of that's her kind of relative youth and vitality. Um, her, the, the 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 different sort of relationship that she had, you know, the kind of public relationship that she had with her husband in a way that previous presidents haven't uh, to the same degree. Um, and I think also just thinking about the job allowed, 
you know, I think Hillary Hillary Clinton is the only person who's probably done that in quite the same way, right? Mm-hmm. And this is before she before she became a politician in her own right, where she was a politician, I guess, before she became an elected official in her own right. But just sort of thinking aloud about what does this job, what are the public expectations of this job versus what kind of person am I? And really sort of not just touching on that question, but diving deep into that question, which I thought was really fascinating. The other thing that's come out of this book to her is she is not afraid to criticize President Trump, uh, whom she calls a bully and a misogynist in the book. Um, she also writes, I sometimes wonder where the bottom might be. Uh, and there's been this whole, you know, kind of where's where's Barack <laughs> kind of thing on Twitter. Why aren't you out here criticizing the pre- – why aren't you out here rallying us, which he then sort of did finally during the midterm, some of his appearances during the midterms. But mm-hmm. um, she is not worried about that. Uh, and in one of the better stories, too, that she's come out with is like how she just – she could not smile her way through – Trump's inauguration speech, one, looking at the lack of diversity up there, and then also just sort of hearing that American carnage speech. Um, And simply said, I couldn't fake it because I wasn't, you know, I understood what the occasion called for and how my my husband and I needed to, you know, hand over the office and how important that is uh, to the Constitution and to the American experience. But I was not happy about what I was hearing. And I was, I am not afraid to say it. Yeah. I mean, she's... I mean, she's just, she's just so it's, she, her insight into, into the presidency is, I mean, from the moment she started talking about it, it's clear that this is like the best presidential memoir that we're ever going to read in a lot of ways. Right. Because there, because her honesty, or at least the, the, what seems to be her honesty and, and, and just clear headedness is, is, uh, you know, is just so authentic and so powerful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I and and her, uh, it's there's something I, I I don't know. It's really hard to put into words the way that she's able to uh, better than you did. The way that she's able to sort of um, transcend, just not transcend politics, but kind of transcend the moment and uh, and and you know, be so forthright about those things without without seeming at least from where I'm sitting without feeling like she's posturing or or, try, or trying to be too political. Um, but certainly, this is going to be <laughs> you know the reception is going to be. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary on wh- on how you read some of that. I guess one more thing though before we t- to bring this back around to the economics of it. I wonder if, I mean, obviously she's going to she's going to fill these these arenas, and there's a lot of people that have you know written um, over the you know the past several years about the sort of economics of having a an athletic arena. Um, certainly they're all moving. I mean, uh, you know, we've I've seen this as the Barclays Center grew up basically in my backyard in Brooklyn. Um, how, you know, there's, there's definitely an increased, uh, push towards just keeping the lights on every night. You know, I mean, there are a lot of different events and she's not the only per the only person, I mean, to compare to other books, I, uh, other book tours is obviously the wrong thing when there's a lot of speakers and everything else that sell out big arenas all the time. But part of me wonders if, you know, with all the shit that the Clintons have gotten for the Clinton foundation as, as, you know, uh, positive as that could have been. Uh, you know, but but especially all the all the all the knocks Hillary took for giving paid speeches in the last time. I kind of wonder if the book tour is the last like honest way to make a buck <laughs> for a for a former politician. So you don't take you the money I mean? from Goldman, you take it from Random House. You take it, and then and you're set. You're 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 selling the tickets. You're not just taking a set. Fee. You know, if Goldman Sachs were sponsoring the book tour, that would be problematic. 
This feels like <laughs> she's a woman of the people. That'd be amazing. The evening with the Clintons, sponsored by, brought to you by Goldman Sachs. Yeah. They're just like, let's lean into the, you know, and it's, oh, well, we're done now. And, uh, go ahead and we're not worried about that anymore. All right, dude, for our final segment, we're just going to do a couple of quick hitters before we get out of here about media stuff. We'll, we'll name this segment at some point. Uh, please send your suggestions to at the press box pod. Uh, I was struck by a quote in Robert Draper's big profile of Nancy Pelosi in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. Uh-huh. This is Pelosi, the former and apparently soon to be Speaker of the House. May I say something you're not going to like? I think the press loves him, referring to Donald Trump, all day on TV. And I don't even watch TV except sports. But he says someone had a horse face all day. We hear about that. You just give him all day. Now, Nancy Pelosi is making a point about here about the media's codependent relationship with Donald Trump, which I think is unassailable, right? What struck me was this little phrase where she says, I don't even watch TV except sports. We in the sports media, I think, regard sports television as just this garbage pit. But let us note that a politician saying they watch nothing on television except sports is the great safe harbor of political speech, right? I just watch sports. That's all I watch on television. <laughs> I don't pay attention to anything else. It's like it's like you know that that's a place you want to be. Like that is a, that is that is that is a popular stance to take. The other thing I had for you: the crooked media guys who used to work with us um, said they were surprised and angry about the, to learn that definers public affairs had played a role in the Facebook caper, and they were surprised and angry because Tim Miller, who was an occasional contributor to their uh, media sphere. Um, mm-hmm was one of the guys from Definers, and they announced that he would be no longer contributing to Crooked Media. I feel this is a point you and I have kind of circled around a couple of times and maybe touched on. I am the last person to think journalism should be a priesthood. But this is one of those cases where you just have to pick, right, what side you want to be on, right? Do you want to be the, you know, never-Trumper, you know, nice-guy conservative who is criticizing the GOP, for demonizing George Soros? Or do you want to be the guy getting paid to demonize George Soros? <laughs> <laughs> you just have to pick one of the two. And, and and more to the point, your media company should make you pick one of the two. You can't do yeah. It's like that I, I, Ed Rogers at the Washington Post columnist that Jonathan Chait is always writing about, mm-hmm. who's like a lobbyist and has all these clients. And I also write op-eds where I'm pursuing clear-eyed truth in the Washington Post op-ed page. Yeah. Really, you just got to pick one or the other. You know, yeah, and, and who who wants to hear from somebody who is who is getting paid to do this? I just find I just find that very funny. Yeah, and, it's crazy, and it's one of those things where you know, there's another one with Rick Santorum talking about climate change and at the same time getting paid by you know fossil fuels. But you just just pick, just pick one or the other. You know, again, I'm not saying you don't have no right to comment on this. I'm not saying people should, but you your your employer should make you choose. You just got to do one or the other. That's all. That's all yep. I have to say. All right. Producer of this show is Jim Cunningham. Uh, research from Chris Almeida. He is David Shoemaker. I am Brian Curtis. Back next week with more hot takes on the media. See you then, David. See you later, man. Yep. What did you make of I don't give a fuck? Um, 
It's a good question. I, I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, as with all these things, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. But I, I just feel like the, it's, it's hard to not sort of, I guess, for me to not take a sort of large point of view on this, but it seems like... I don't give a fuck. Um, shit, I do not want to talk about this. 